welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. quick one from me it is the 12th of april in victoria we are in the middle of holidays i'd love to say that i've had a huge break but anybody that has little children i have a two and a four year old who didn't have any kinder or daycare or anything like that over the easter break so i've had very little time alone and one of the few days that i've had without the kids i've actually scheduled some work time with a colleague so hopefully this second week there will be a little bit more resting Um, I'm feeling at the moment like I haven't quite had as much of a break as I would have liked. But if you are on holidays, I really hope that you are enjoying that, whether it's your first or second week. I have got Kayla from Our Dilly Bag and also our song lines on Instagram. I reached out to her a couple of months ago because I found the way that she educates on Indigenous issues is incredibly informative and allows for people not to feel threatened or blamed in any way. And as somebody I've said on the podcast many times who feels as though they kind of missed that really intensive education around Indigenous culture at my formal schooling or through my formal schooling, I have felt relatively embarrassed at my lack of knowledge. And I find sometimes that I feel ashamed that I don't know more or that you know, people are so angry about things that I feel as though I should have known earlier. And so this is 100% a journey for me and I'm currently still on it. And you can definitely hear in the way that I ask questions that I'm trying to find the right words. I'm trying to be respectful as best I can, but also trying to disrupt and dismantle some of the rhetoric that I've heard and that keeps coming back at me when I try and sort of find out more from different people so if I have said something incorrectly I do apologize please feel free to dm me and let me know how to educate myself even further because as I said it's certainly a journey and I am as vulnerable as I can be on here hoping that other people that perhaps know as little as me or know even less than me it's a place to start at least understanding indigenous viewpoints and perspectives and that is all I'm about is learning and ensuring that I'm giving a platform to the people that haven't received one before or who have been spoken about. And that's really not my place. My place is really to elevate and to provide a platform, as I've said. If you like the episode, please share on social media. Tag me at Educating Laura and Kayla at either our dilly bag or our song lines. I recommend you check out those Instagram pages. I'll have a whole heap of other things in the show notes that we mentioned throughout the episode. So as I said, if this is your starting point or you are early on the journey of learning, there is some place to start. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple, follow on Spotify. I also have a little link where if you are really enjoying it and you'd like to give back, you can buy me a virtual coffee. So there is a link in the show notes for that as well. Otherwise, I'm going to hand it over to Kayla. Hi, Kayla. How are you? 
Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. I would like to start by acknowledging the land that we are currently on and for acknowledging the elders, past, present and emerging. And one of my first questions for you is the significance of that acknowledgement, what that really means for you as an Aboriginal woman. So the significance of the acknowledgement is about rewriting the history. So when the colonisers came, they said it was terra nullius, meaning there was empty land, there was no people looking after the land. So by acknowledging the first peoples, we're actually rewriting that and saying we see that there was Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders here before the colonisers came and it's about paying that respect. So rewriting that history by doing that, we're educating and um, standing up. It's it's social activism. Yes. Are you finding that you are getting a lot more allies with this kind of, even just having that as an introduction to meetings and conferences and things like that, that it's really becoming far more widespread even just that little acknowledgement at the beginning of something to to consider that shift in in perspective from a lot of I'm going to say white in in you know individuals yeah so I think it's more there to make the indigenous people feel more comfortable being in those okay. things yeah that's what I feel when I go into a meeting and someone does an acknowledgement it makes me feel okay this is an ally this is a safe space I find it different with different white people um, as to whether or not they've bought into it, whether they, you know, um, understand the importance of it. So that's where I find it. It can be good and it can be bad. People can find it confronting. They don't know what it means and they feel it's, you know, kind of tokenism. So there are like lots of different opinions around it. But personally, I really like it. I'm so glad we've had this acknowledgement because I looked at it from a shifting white perspective to see that there is acknowledgement needing to be made and you're telling me that for you as an Aboriginal woman it's about feeling safe and accepted and so I love the fact that that's not a perspective that I would have had necessarily and I'm glad that you're giving me that. Yeah it seems like it you know it's a couple of sentences at the start of a a meeting kind of think oh all right better do that but the impact that you can actually have is really big and then when you start, you know, expanding it and start really touching into those areas of what am I acknowledging here? What yeah. am I thankful for on this land? And you start broadening it and saying, you know, I'm thankful to be on this beautiful Bonneron country where I'm able to go to the beach and, you know, be amongst the nature that I know my ancestors have been on. Like it's just so powerful. Mm. I'd love to hear about your educational experience in Australia. With Indigenous culture? Yeah, yeah, with Indigenous culture, but also just the actual like educational system for you. Like, What did you get out of it and also what was lacking for you? Yeah, so for me, I was pretty disconnected at school. I, uh, I grew up in Darwin originally, which has a huge... Uh, Indigenous population and then I moved to the Mornington Peninsula which doesn't (laughs) and went from you know being the majority to the minority and Mm. I had to change my language like the the, you know the 
things that I would say wouldn't make sense to other kids and it was a real shift mind shift really to try and adjust mm. my language so people understood what I was saying mm. so it was a really strange period that transition and then also things like my mum would come and sit in the classroom and you know help yep. out and be there uh, whereas none of the other kids mums would <laughs> and like yeah yeah so it was um it was a strange period mm. and then also just there wasn't any Indigenous stories like proper stories it was all just hunter-gatherer you know how lucky the Indigenous people were because then we got technology and it was wow. that kind of mindset and Oh, this is a very interesting lens to be sharing that through, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's really confusing for me because I obviously get different stories at home and then yeah. hearing it at school where they're both, you know, authority figures that kids are meant to look up to and trust and it was a really confusing period for me. I felt really disconnected and not really interested in my studies. Yes. And so how old were you when you made that move from Darwin to Mornington Peninsula? Uh, I was about eight. Okay. So primary school? Yeah, primary school. I've spoken before on on the podcast about my Indigenous education in high school was very, I'm going to say almost non-existent. In primary school, there was some, but I will use the word tokenistic because it was, we learned about the rainbow serpent as a story. There was an Aboriginal artist who came in and we all were encouraged to, you know, contribute something simple to the art that he was doing. And we also learned about the discovery of Australia with the first fleet. So super confusing. Yeah. Nothing gelled. And mm. and because no connections were being made, I didn't understand the significance. The story felt like a story. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't any cultural connection or relevance to me because it was it wasn't done in the perspective of history it was much more about a story so I'm wondering did you have a similar experience yeah it was very confusing as to where it all fit in in a timeline and I guess it comes from you know indigenous beliefs and knowledges that there's no kind of linear time frame it's all one and you know the song line help you navigate through dream time and current and past and that's what connects you it's a really holistic viewpoint of things and then when they would talk about you know those kind of dream time stories it was here's a make-believe story or yes then you look at religion how religion's taught and it's I mean really it could be taught the same way it's a, a spiritual you know connection and it's just not it's talked in fact so it was really huge disconnect there where did you go to school? In Bayside area. Yeah, so Victoria. Because yeah. the Rainbow Serpent's a northern a northern creator spirit. So you shouldn't even be learning about ah. the Rainbow Serpent before you're learning about Bunjil, who is the southern creator spirit. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that like the those key things are completely missed when you're talking about it. You kind of People grab just one thing that they hear of and they teach that, but it's over 400 different countries that make up Indigenous Australia and then it's just grabbing a story that people like and putting it over here, but it's not the right yeah. fit. It doesn't make sense. 
So it really should be based on the land that you're on and trying to understand that particular country's, as you say, culture and relevance rather than just, oh, that's a nice story, let's tell it. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's interesting to learn about the different areas. But when you're going through school, you should know the difference between your local area, the land that you're on, and northern, you know, northern territory story. Yes. So it's very interesting that because a lot of people overseas and everything will know about the rainbow serpent but not many people will talk about bunjul and it's just so interesting to me so can you tell me about bunjul can we hear about the significance yeah so bunjul is the creator spirit down south so it's in different areas down here not all of them but he's depicted as a wedgetail eagle Mm -hmm. so you might see big statues of Bunjul in different places, but Bunjul originated in the Grampians okay. um, and created the Grampian area and, you know, the animals and the waterways and things like that. And then you've got Wa the raven mm-hmm. who looks after the waterways, so protector of the waterways. So you've got Bunjul the creator and Wa the protector. Mm-hmm. You made that comment before about religion. You're right in that we hear about all of these parables and the morals and these stories that are there to exemplify values of the religion. And ultimately there's a lot of similarities I would say in terms of that idea that these, you know, Dreamtime stories offer understanding and morality and values that come with your culture because we see religion in such a you know, there's so much validity in religion that I think we're still building towards the Aboriginal culture. I'm wondering how we make that next step, do you think? Oh, good question. I think it all comes from starting that education young and just giving young people the chance to hear Mm. about the stories and about the culture and a strength-based approach rather than the kind of dismissive hunter-gatherer um, ideas that we've been given in the past. Bruce Pascoe's got the Young Darkie new book out, which is really good for young people to be using to learn about that stuff properly and for schools to be taking on. There's then the Darkie movie for adults, which works really well together for like parents and, and their children. Amazing. Were you always aware of your Indigenous heritage and was it always celebrated? Yeah, yeah. So I've got a really strong family culture. So my family is really big in Darwin. So we've got heaps and heaps of cousins and aunties and uncles who have travelled all around Australia now. My nana and my uncle were part of the stolen generation. Right. And they were, so they were taken from where we were from and they managed to find their way back to each other and keep growing that really strong culture in Darwin. So we've been really fortunate to have, you know, my mum who's really passionate about Indigenous issues and topics and culture and my dad who's non-Indigenous who worked all in Indigenous communities and um, is all about bringing up that economic value for Indigenous people. So it was never an issue for us to get that connection, which is so fortunate because a lot of Stolen Generation didn't find their way back. 
and we've really lost from it. But my family has been lucky enough to be really strong and, you know, know where to look or know who to ask for more information. Mind you, like a lot of the culture is lost now, but yeah, we're a lucky family. What impact has that experience of the stolen generation had on your family? You know, the people that went through it and also the generations that have come from that. So my uncle wrote a book about his experience in wow. um, as a four-year-old who was taken. Wow. And his memories of being taken and put in the back of a panel van with like packed with other Aboriginal kids. Mm. They were treated as less than cattle. They weren't given water. Mm. They were driven from the Kimberleys area all the way down to New South Wales, so a huge way, and they were hardly given food or water. Mm. And even when they needed to go to the toilet, there was like little holes in the van that they'd have to pee out of. Mm. It's absolutely horrific. And when I was reading it, I was I was going through it and I have severe anxiety and I've never mm-hmm. really, I couldn't like place a kind of, event or trigger it yeah and then when I was reading the type of anxiety he has which is all about being trapped and being unable to escape and you know trying to get back you know to safety and that's it was this like I was reading my own anxiety wow I was yeah and I was like oh my god this is where it's come from like that that experience and it was like awful to read but also like a bit special to know that you know that culture runs deep in us and I know that if that anxiety is there so is you know the gut instinct and the ancestral connection and all that beautiful stuff too yeah so it was um very scary and spooky to read it but it also comforted me a lot and yeah I think that you know, my my push for accepting mob who don't know where they're from, a lot of the time there's stigma around that because people are worried that they're not really Aboriginal or they're trying to, you know, get in to the groups. I'm very accepting of people who don't know where they're from because that could have easily been me and my family and, like, I don't want to continue that trauma of not having that place. So I think that's really shaped me and my ideas and how I've come up with our song lines and why I'm so inclusive and I'm ready to listen to anyone. What I feel really disappointed by is the fact that science isn't quite there yet in terms of that idea of intergenerational trauma, understanding the fact that it is a real thing. I mean, they're doing epigenetics is something currently that they're studying around the fact that our proteins are affected based on the trauma of our parents Mm. and it actually impacts the way that your proteins are formed that your dna is wrapped around you know so there is some science moving that way but we're not almost progressive enough to understand yet we feel it Mm. you know so you don't have the science or the knowledge to exactly say to me this is why this is happening but i know that it's happening i've read that and i can see myself in that anxiety and i can feel that our culture is not just about what i'm being told but what i feel and what i know within myself and it must be so hard to know those things within yourself and be dismissed because it cannot be quantifiable in some way 
You know, it cannot be proven by data. Yeah, and that's why it's really important to have a strong group of Aboriginal people around me. I've, I really select the people who I keep close and hold close to me because they feel what I feel and they know and it's it saves that explanation, which is really hard if you haven't experienced to have that kind of outlook mm-hmm. I find like even looking for a counsellor who I could talk to about this stuff yes. was really difficult because I kept having to explain my culture to be able to talk about the problems and it wasn't quite understood mm-hmm. so I ended up finding a beautiful Aboriginal counsellor who I was able to talk to and it was just so much easier I was like wow this is how other people feel every day just understood. Yeah, well, I feel seen, right? Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, that, no wonder things are much easier. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying too, I'm sure on your stories and what you posted in our Dilly Bag on Instagram and also our song lines, which are really important pages that people should be following and the work that you are doing is just incredible. But you were talking about how really the Indigenous population is, what, 3.3%? or something it's quite low yeah and so it's very hard to find the right people in the roles that you need them to be you know as you just said it's so difficult when you're looking for a psychologist who understands you or or a counselor who understands you but there's only three percent of the population that could potentially fill those roles it must be really challenging yeah and then you look at the fact that these people had to have survived in the mainstream education system to be able to go and find these higher educational roles go through them um, succeed at it and then be in a place where they're offered a subsidy so we can go see them affordably Mm. So yes, it's it's yeah um, constant barriers to try and get to because if it was you know a healer who's just using their indigenous culture, we wouldn't be subsidised for it. We wouldn't be able to afford yeah. it. The the financial privilege is a real thing, isn't it? It's just such a real thing. Yeah, and then a lot of the time people say, "Well, it's to help your own mob. Why wouldn't you do it for free?" And it's like we can't do everything for free. Like we actually need yes. to earn, earn a living. Yeah, but it's also I had someone the other day say to me because I do some tutoring and she was asking how much I charged and she said you need to raise your prices. And I was like, I, mm, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable because I believe that education should be affordable, especially supportive education should be affordable. And she said, but you're devaluing potentially your worth. And I would say the same thing about the Indigenous learning and and education and support that you're able to offer it shouldn't be devalued it's important and it's special and it's something that only certain people can do and so you deserve to be able to make a living from it if it's a support for the community exactly right and that's a really hard thing for mob to get their head around as well like they're often Mm -hmm. doing things for free and often doing things a lot cheaper um, because they love it or because they they want to support people it's just something that we need to overcome in order to change that indigenous economy and create that money that we need to start lifting you know or we'll start closing the gap so where does that come from? Does that come within the mob, as you call it? Is that Does it come within the people who believe that they should be giving these things for free or is it the fact that 
it feels as though people believe it should be free outside of the mob that that feel as though you know if you love it and it's your culture and it's who you are you should give it for free where does that sort of disparity lie so it's usually things like people are writing reconciliation action plans mm-hmm. and they want to create great opportunities for indigenous people and then mm-hmm. they come give us you know come work with us for a year to build this rap but they're not offering you any money for it they want you to do it because you're benefiting your own kind a lot of teachers in my area will ask me to come and meet with all their students take a day and set up meetings with all of their Indigenous students and just do it because I want to look after the young people and make sure that they are guided properly. And, you know, I've, like, got a soft spot for that and I need to be a bit harder <laughs> with that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. it is something that should be paid for. I totally understand because I'm I'm very similar. If somebody couldn't afford something, I would drop my price. Yeah. You know what I mean? If I, be- if I really believed that this person needed my support... And it's very hard to ask for money when you know that it's going to be widely beneficial. But at the same time, I would say that that's almost a self-care boundary. Yeah. Really, to say, no, this is actually my limitation. I'm willing to do this much for you, but then after that I need compensation because this is your time. Your time is worth something and your knowledge is worth something, worth a lot actually, not just something. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, there's always room to lower prices for people who genuinely can't afford it. You know, create that space for it. And I think that's where it becomes difficult because the, you know, Indigenous economy just isn't there yet. We're, we're paid less. We're at the lower end of the economy. So it's really hard to get people to care about that, to put their money in for it. I want to ask you a question because it's something that I hear a lot. And as I said, I've come from a very white Catholic education system where you hear things like, why wouldn't they get an education? And I say this in air quotes because it's incredibly general because, you know, there's handouts or there's money and why wouldn't they? And you've just touched on before the fact that, yeah, sure, but they've got to get to that place of being able to take on, you know, tertiary education because they've got to have survived, as you say, the general education system. So tell me about what in the education system makes it very hard for Indigenous people to get to the end of it and to and to succeed I mean you're constantly undermined with your values and your beliefs Mm. which is a really hard thing to accept when you're a young person Mm. just never fitting in and being okay with that and people assuming you're not going to succeed and teachers assuming you're not going to succeed people saying that you're getting free education when it's just not the case like I've never had a handout for anything and I'm looking around my friends and you know cousins and stuff I'm like who's who's getting these handouts we're hearing about because certainly not us where does that come from then because that is that is a really entrenched stereotype Mm. in our culture they they again in air quotes they just get a handout so you're telling me that that's not the case no why are we hearing that over and over because I hate I hate that rhetoric so much yeah so I want to clear it up. I would say that comes from like parliament from people like John Howard who had a whole campaign about they'll take your backyard, which just was lies and um, encouraged people to smash up any Indigenous artefacts they found on their properties because we'll take we'll come and take your property, destroying culture forever, dividing the community, creating this 
hate in this area because really they don't want to have to pay for the land that was stolen. They don't want to have to pay water rights or land rights. They're getting all the money from the natural resources. Why would they want to share that? And really it's about scaring the general public so that they can keep the money coming into them. It's it's about division. You're saying there's no hand no handouts that you've received. So how then do we get Indigenous people into these positions of higher education where they can give back or where they can, you know, feel as though they have the same opportunities as other people? Yeah, it's really about because you kind of have to live in two worlds in this mm-hmm. scenario and some people just don't want to and they don't need to in a lot of situations like you know we just we hear about people coming to this country and everyone saying oh why don't they just learn our language why don't they just fit in and we get the same treatment of that mm-hmm. you know learn learn the language just assimilate where like assimilate. loves assimilation like even the referendum that gave Indigenous people the right to vote wasn't about mm. equality, it wasn't about justice, it was about the campaign was something like give Aboriginal people the right to vote, they want to be like us, they want to be Australian. Mm. It wasn't, wow. yeah, it was about blending in, not rectifying the past and that's like something that gets smoothed over and kind of, overlooked but it's very important to point that out and see where we are because we're not about celebrating differences different cultures we're about making everyone the same so we're not intimidated by the differences and it's really gross it's such a um, poor trait I was saying to you I've got it in my notes here that we're teaching the seven stages of grieving by Wesley Enoch and Deborah Malman the play and in the forward of that it says something like white, you know, colonial people just want to say sorry or want to acknowledge it and then be done with it. It's really important. Like just tell us what to do and then can we not talk about it again? That's the kind of mentality. But for Aboriginal, Indigenous, Torres Strait Islander people, it says something like we need to be acknowledged so that we can grieve. And so we can spend time in this grief that we've not been allowed to feel or we're not been acknowledged enough to feel is real. And so I'd love to hear about that because I certainly know a number of people in my life that say, but we've already said sorry. This is literally something that was said to me. If we change the date of Australia Day, they, they, they again, won't be happy. It'll be something else, mm. right? And, I, and that so much is about can we just move on? I've had enough of this. Can we just move mm. on? And that's the perspective that's not there's another perspective here that's not being shared and I'd love you to share it's not about moving on is it no it's how can you just move on from uh attempted genocide yes like you don't go to Nazi Germany and say why don't you stop talking about that we're sick of you know another Nazi film coming out everyone goes and sees it and experiences and mourns and feels exactly what everyone went through and we haven't stopped to actually sit in the discomfort in order to move past it. Mm. One person said sorry and around that sorry was so much 
hostility. I remember being in school and there being a debate about whether it should happen. And oh, what was it? It was a big, we didn't do anything. Why are we saying sorry? And um, I remember my teacher being like, so if your mother died, I would say, sorry, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That's an awful thing. I didn't kill her, mm. but I'm so sorry mm. that that's happened. And I acknowledge that. We don't go, mm. oh, whatever. Like, you know, that was the thing that happened. Like, you know, that was a year ago. Like, get over it. You know, we allow people to sit in that and experience that. And as soon as it comes to Indigenous issues, people are so they're so standoffish and so they feel confronted they feel like they're in trouble and it's just gonna like keep creating hostility because yeah can't if you can't comprehend it if you can't understand it and sit with it it's not sorry yeah it's so defensive isn't it it's so defensive because it's it's well it's holding a mirror up to our history yeah and we're not ready to see it so I love how you brought up the Holocaust because we are happy to go and see those movies. We're happy to talk about the problems that came from that because it doesn't feel like it's ours. And so we can empathize and sympathize without feeling any blame. And I think that that's the biggest issue here is that we're so defensive. We don't want to see that our history is incredibly traumatic and checkered and dark because it's holding a mirror up to us as Australians. Exactly right. And it just shows how far behind we are at self-awareness because the Germans teach it. They have those museums open. They have the, you know, concentration camps available for you to go and look at. They're not shying away from their history. They're acknowledging it and they won't go through it again because they are acknowledging it. Everyone gets taught it. They know it was a bad period of time and they're moving forward. And that's something that we can't do. We still have high incarceration rates, we get high deaths in custody. We have people say we've still got the stolen generation happening because a lot of our kids are taken from home. So what what have we overcome here? It's it's still racism. When I was in England, I studied in England for a little while, I actually had a student come up to me and tell me about our history because I wasn't taught mm. it. He was he grew up in Greece and then studied in England and they had been taught about our history in a far more, I would say, objective lens, just looking at what happened. And he was telling me about it and I was 21 because I hadn't heard about it because it wasn't taught that way. And, look, I mean, I went to Germany and I went to Dachau, which is one of the concentration camps there, and it's certainly not as emotive as the concentration camps that you can go to that aren't in Germany because obviously it's hard. It's hard to put the emotion into something when it was your country. It's very hard. So it's it's much more factual, I suppose. But we're not even getting that mm. here. Yeah, I um, had a similar experience when I went to America and had Americans mm. telling me and I had always, you know, kind yeah. of been – seen the stereotype of you know they only self-absorbed and you know only cared about themselves and they knew they knew more than the people I was traveling with that's a big problem that the world knows about our history and we're covering it up that's a huge problem and I think 
from my perspective too, there was a, and I'm, I'm a product of the nineties primarily in terms of my education. People didn't know what to say and do. And I think some people just said and did nothing. Mm. And we're now at a point where the world is saying enough's enough. It's not just here. It's, you know, the whole world is saying this is enough. We need to deal with our, the underbelly of the world really. So how do we shift that and get the reality of what Australian history is into schools without it being such a huge burden on, as you say, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals having to give up their time because with 3% of you as the population, you could not possibly spread the message alone. Exactly right. And I think, you know, we've got some really incredible authors out there who we can just start by changing up the uh, curriculum and add like a proper black voice to, to all of these literature subjects and really hear from Indigenous people, Indigenous perspective, rather than it just being told at us. Yes. I'd like to talk about Survival Day. Yes. Can you tell me the significance of that for you and the importance of moving the date for you and for your culture? Yes. So my belief in January 26th is that we should be acknowledging culture, mourning, and re like really experiencing I think that all non-Indigenous people should be embedding culture into their lives especially on that day so we created the Our Survival Day event which did just that it was a safe space for Indigenous people to go and to feel however they needed to feel you Mm. know we had people really upset some people really happy that they had a place to go. It was the first space that they could go to Mornington Peninsula, where we're from. Mm -hmm. And it was about just coming together and acknowledging what that day was. It wasn't about, you know, having enemies or anything like that. It was about protecting ourselves and creating a safe space around us. My perspective on Australia Day is that it's not inclusive. It's not, it, mm-hmm. it never will be on that date. And mm. I, you know, love Australia and I want to celebrate it. And I, you know, in the past I tried to go to Australia Day events and I'd go to the yeah. march in the morning and then I'd go to the a barbecue in the afternoon and there was just no place where I was emotions were everywhere it just didn't make sense and it doesn't need to be it's just a day that's you know it was came into effect in 1996 I think it was or four yeah one of those nationally so it's it's younger than me (laughs) yes it's um yeah it's a day that celebrates colonization I mean white supremacy and ignoring Mm -hmm. history and attempted genocide there's nothing to celebrate there no genuine person who you thought about that day would celebrate it like you've got to have some really huge ethical and moral dilemmas to be able to sit back and think that that's a good day to choose Mm. so there's different opinions though I just want to point out um you know a lot of Indigenous people believe that because it was ignored that there were people there before, mm. so that 
Aboriginal Indigenous population before and there was no treaty. A war has happened and there's been no treaty and therefore uh, no war has been won. Sovereignty hasn't been ceded. And therefore people believe that Australia doesn't exist because it can't exist because there was no overcoming of of one power and that's how it's meant to work in the UN and yes so there is a lot of people who say Australia does not exist sovereignty was never ceded so there should be you know abolish Australia Day there should be no Australia Day so yeah that's another side of the um which is important to acknowledge that that is a perspective here exactly exactly you know I like I get it I get I personally want to celebrate what Australia is because I exist because Australia is around my dad's Irish you know my mum's Aboriginal so I can't ignore half of me you know it's I am and you know I I connect to both my cultures. I think this is where as you say the divisiveness happens because there are statements made like abolish the date and the inference that people draw from that is well they don't want us again they don't want us to celebrate our country and we love our country we would like to have an opportunity to celebrate it then there are people who you know think well why don't we do mates day you know may 8 whatever that is is that a better day so what's your thought about that because i think the divisiveness comes from the idea of removing a celebration for our country and i think that that is certainly very contentious and I think why people don't almost want to get on board because they think, well, do we get nothing, you know? And, again, I'm speaking in very general terms and a lot of air quotes there, but that's a big issue I think in terms of creating divide between understanding the wants and the needs for Indigenous individuals and believing that they're trying to take something away. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is a very real conversation that comes up and it's not really something that I can answer it's something that's happened because protocols weren't done correctly and we ignored the facts right in front of us and said you know there was only flora and fauna here Uh, so Mm. that mess was created back in uh, Cook's Lieutenant day so (laughs) I don't know how to rectify that I mean Land rights, water rights, I'd say. You start there. Yeah. Would you like to still celebrate Australia as it is today, just on a different date? Yeah, for me, that's what I definitely want. So I strongly believe in unity and, you know, really experiencing what Australia is today and what it looks like and our, you know, celebrating multiculturalism, not just saying that we do because yeah 100% people have come (laughs) yeah yeah well I put up on Instagram a history assignment that I found that I had done in primary school and it's all about multiculturalism but it's all about European multiculturalism and what Europe Europeans have brought here and you know my mum's Hungarian and so I was kind of like oh this is lovely it's really nice to have a culture and there was so much rhetoric around the fact that it's lovely that Europe has brought this culture because Australia had none and how lucky we are. You're giggling, right? Like it's just what what a narrow-minded lens history was taught through for a time that we believed multiculturalism was the only way we had a culture. Yeah, and 
I mean, even that, you look at it and you go, well, hang on, what part of Europe did they actually accept the culture from? It's not the Spanish, not the Greeks, it's not the Italians. Like, it, you know, it is the UK, maybe Irish they want to touch in on, but it's certainly not the darker-skinned countries or the big that they don't believe, like even the Nordic kind of countries they wouldn't you know the socialism kind of side of things it's like oh no it's more American than it is European yes you're right you're right but it's funny as I said the language we use to make it seem more palatable yes it's it's incredible the stuff that we um train ourselves to think about which is just ridiculously untrue you you see people speaking a different language in the street and everyone's like (gasps) What are they talking about? Are they talking about us? And it's like. No, they're talking about their really groceries, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <They're> self-absorbed. <laughs> yeah. Like celebrate it, learn it. Like why yes. learning these languages? Like, And I think too people are really, people again I say white people in general, I think that we see people fighting for their rights and it seems aggressive potentially and so you already take a couple of steps back but you've got to consider why it has to be aggressive well because no one's listened before it has to be loud because no one's listened before and this is why I wanted so much to reach out to you because I love as as I said what you're doing with our songlines and our dilly bag and I spent a lot of time actually watching what you're posting on survival day because it was so informative and it was so helpful for me as somebody with very little genuine education to get that perspective and I think that in a way that's what the Black Squares did on Black Lives Matter and the Share the Mic last year did in empowering voices that were not the ones retelling the story but actually the people that have lived it and the people that have the genuine understanding. I think that that's really important to come out of 2020 really and the social media movements that we saw. That was huge. The Black Lives Matter protest was huge. It was a Huge moment for me personally, I um, stopped and was like, I remember going, so I went to the marches um, mm. up in the city and it was just around the coronavirus times and there was so much people just throwing shade, like, yeah. why can't you find a better time to do this? Like, I care about this, but, you know, I'm not going to risk people's health. And I was like, you, you are risking people's health because people are dying in prison every day Mm. and you're ignoring Mm. it that is risking people's lives um not talking about it and filling your news feed with why are people doing this rather than listening to why people are doing this was huge for me I just I just did a Facebook cull of the people I'd stand hearing from anyone I thought you know I actually I'm too old to be surrounded by this hate (laughs) yeah I want to surround myself with people who want to learn or want to listen or you know are great allies or indigenous people yeah and I had a similar moment I think where I thought I'm too old to be embarrassed that I don't know Mm. I really had that moment because, you know, I think when you're young, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that you don't know and it's like, well, I don't know who to ask, so it's all too hard. I'm not, And I'm like, you know what, I'm now at a position, I'm an educator, I'm a mother, I'm well into my 30s now. If I'm not going to find out and learn for myself, 
no one's going to teach me. So that's really important to me. And I think that if I can put that out there, that there are people willing to teach you and it doesn't have to be an angry, awful situation where you feel confronted and blamed. It can actually just be a really important learning opportunity where you go, oh, okay, now I know that. I'm not going to do that again, or I'm going to consider it differently, or I'm going to move forward and then share that information with someone else. Exactly right. And I think, you know, at our songlines, we provide that kind of easy stepping stone in to it. But by the time you've gone through all our stories and messages, you become angry. Like it's hard yeah. to have that impact and people will message all the time, like, how are you calm about this? You know, I'm I'm furious. I can't believe this has happened and been happening. And it's it's true, but that's that's the way to get allies on board is to create a safe space for allies as well to learn. Yes, and that's why I think you have done a brilliant job because you're right, it seems so unfair and so unjust, but it's important for me to make that connection through the facts because I think that that's what gets people on board that, you know, if you're told this is how you should feel, often people reject that. Whereas if they are led to find out and create that their own understanding and, and the feeling is natural and theirs, it's much more impactful. So I think you, in terms of the information you put out there, the safe space for people that don't know, like myself, who are, who are taking the steps to learn as much as they can, I would highly recommend anybody in the position that I am in and have been in to check out all of that information that you're putting out there. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. I'd love to talk about your connection to the land. We're now, we talk about grounding, we talk, and we talk about often with, you know, spirituality and yoga and things like that and, and finding well-being. And we talk about this idea of, you know, ground and put your feet in the earth. And it seems like this new age thing, which I'm sure that you've been doing forever. And no one's listened. Yeah. <laughs> right? So what is your connection to the land? So, yeah, I have always been someone who doesn't put myself above nature or or the land. You know, I will never step on an ant or, you know, kill a spider. I will manoeuvre things around. Like I will literally go out of my way to make sure that I don't see myself above anything that's in there. I don't believe in, you know, the hierarchy or anything like that. Mm I get a lot of calm and peace from being out in the water and mm-hmm. the sand and out in the bush. And I feel really connected in those times. Like that's where I can really get my energy from, from that space. Like I really use yeah. that space to bring myself joy and calm and then I want to give that back and I want to treat that back. Mm. why I you know really respect nature and I really care for it and I think that that's just it's always been in me it's just a really holistic viewpoint that I've just always carried with me and didn't have to learn that empathy for animals or plants or anything like that Mm. it was just always there and I think that you know all our ancestors have come from that Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, my Irish side, and you know, they've had a really beautiful connection to country as well. And I think it's like it's inbuilt in all of us, and we just like cover it up with um, technology and with the industrial revolution and all of yeah. that, you know, money and progress. And I'm lucky enough that 
you know, my my culture is the oldest living culture in the world. We've got 60,000 years, which I believe is why it's so strong in Indigenous people. Yeah. Feel. But I also practice a meditational technique called Wayapa work. It harnesses the the energies of different elements around you. So it goes through the creator spirit, animal spirits, sun and moon, and it brings all that appreciation in for all those different things, rain and wind and lightning, and uses that, like thinks, meditates on on the things around us that we take for granted and what are mm-hmm. important to keep us going. It's a really beautiful meditation technique. So I definitely recommend you giving it a go and being out somewhere wonderful. Everything that you've mentioned about the books and that all of that, I'd like to put that in the show notes for everybody. So, you know, we can access beautiful information as well. So all of that I will get and I'll put in the show notes. Yes, of but again, it's so funny because I would say some of these things have been appropriated. We, we sort of package them up into a different thing and we, and we change the language a little bit to make it more palatable. And we say, look at this new age thing, but it's actually not. So talk to me about cultural appropriation of Indigenous cultures and why it's so bad, how we can avoid doing it. How can you? You can't avoid it. I was in a steam room the other day, mm-hmm. like a couple of days ago, and I was really stoking up. I was like, this is such a beautiful process. And the girl I was with was like, oh, this is stolen from the African people who would create wow. mud huts and have natural steam rooms. And it was stolen and commercialised and, you know, widespread now everywhere does it and you know, they've managed to put it into a nice little packet that people can just buy and it's convenient yes and I was like so how do we how do you get around it like it's yeah so embedded everywhere I'm really nervous about as indigenous culture in Australia starts becoming more interesting to people with money like the white population being able to yeah harness that i mean emu oil is an indigenous medicine that we've been using for thousands of years and white people have bought a farm and they're selling it Mm. and then the birth control pill Mm. the technologies used in that came from well came from a plant that the indigenous people would use so they would use it as at a certain growth level they would use it as birth control and then when it was um, wow. another place, it would be an abortion pill. So Whoa. one tree had the whole <laughs> process going. And I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure the Russians came, saw that, learnt from it, started growing it over there, and then that is what's in all of our birth control, our Australian yeah. heritage. Yeah, There's appreciation and there's appropriation. So is there a line or is it just how do we do it in a way that's, I guess, I don't know, better, less offensive? Because it, I'm sure that there are people, myself included, learning about Indigenous cultures and thinking it's amazing. Mm. There's so much in it, so wonderful, and there's a genuine appreciation there. But then what's that step into where it could become a problem or problematic? I think as soon as it becomes taking jobs from 
people or taking money from Aboriginal people or making money, that is when it's an issue. Then there's obviously things like blackface and, you know, tribal, you know, traditional tribal wear that you just shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't know. Do you remember when that all, I remember it blowing up. It was on Hey Hey at Saturday. Do you remember? Oh, Oh, yeah. And it was, what was it, Red Faces or something? It was early 2000s or mid 2000s. And they brought it back for some reason. And it was a, and it was a skit that had been done back in the day. And Harry Connick Jr. was here and they came out as Michael Jackson, the Michael Jackson, also the Jackson five. And they were painted in blackface. Mm -hmm. And it was an old skit that had won. I don't know, sometime in the 90s when it originally came out and then it was brought back in 2000, I'm going to say 10-ish. And he walked walked out. He was horrified. And it was this huge thing that they, what a a misstep to have no idea that that was problematic and to put that on primetime television. That's exactly how much we've buried our history and like buried our heads in the ground. Like refusing to face these stuff is exactly why we're continuing to fall behind. I remember when Chris Hemsworth did it, so him the dress-up right. party um, with his um, partner and they both had blackface. I'm pretty sure she did too. And he was pulled up on it as soon as he had that. Mm. And since then he has been a huge ally. And, like, mm. it's those things that I'm like, yeah, like that is someone who didn't know, was clearly ignorant and, like, genuinely sorry. And then since then has used power for good. What is your thought about this idea of cancel culture? Because it's almost really concerning sometimes where you put yourself out there, you say something and you literally don't know. Should we be giving people the grace to learn or should we just be wiping them off and go, no, that was the wrong thing to do. You you should no longer have a platform. I guess it depends on the extent of things and what kind of coverage they have. I mean, Sam, you know, doing blackface, still now <laughs> like mm. he just needs to go like he can't he's not ignorant he's a powerful no. white man and that's yes a problem yeah he's just refusing to eddie mcguire hiding behind his oh no i didn't mean that i've got aboriginal mates but then calling people he's he's behind the huge racism scandal that's going on at collingwood and he resigned <laughs> so it's all good mm. like I think that everyone needs to be given a chance to rectify what they've done and I'm all about forgiveness but when it's repeated behaviour or when people... That's not learning, is it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you make a misstep, acknowledge, get quiet, learn and then implement what you've learned. I think that if we can do that in every way of life, that would be so helpful. Exactly. Exactly right. And that's what, you know, we teach our kids, you know, stop, learn, listen. Yes. And, you know, real deep listening. Like let's not yeah. just go defensive and refuse to acknowledge that there's an issue. I'd love to talk about your, I'm going to call it like an entrepreneurial venture that you're doing currently with our songlines. Mm-hmm. People should be watching your stories and going onto your Instagram because you are currently going through all of the amazing people that are part of your organisation and what they bring to the community and you are now putting out this incredible opportunity for people to come and to learn and to be mentored by the wonderful people in your organisation. So I would love so much for you to talk about 
that opportunity? Yeah, so I am extremely lucky to be surrounded by high achievers who are willing to give me their time and they're super passionate. If they're not Indigenous, they're super allies and they're looking to pass on that knowledge so really genuinely step forward in closing the gap and finding opportunities for Indigenous people as well as just uh, empowering our young people. So the internships were open to Indigenous and non-Indigenous people and it was looking Mm -hmm. for allies and Indigenous to upskill and learn and pass on those kind of skill sets that we have. We were really keen we're really keen in the youth space you know I've got a youth background and another person Michael who's in the team he's a youth worker then we've got Yali who's a beautiful writer she comes up with the most beautiful poems if you've seen them she's Indigenous and speaks in her language And so she's like offers so much for aspiring writers to come in and work with her. You've got Britt, who is an ally. She works with me. She's my one employee. (laughs) She just basically is the how she gets everything done. I come up with ideas and she (laughs) put it into practice Um, and then her sister Brooke who's like a marketing extraordinaire and and then Anu he's a photographer and he's also a storyteller and they're all just offering to volunteer their time to help upskill people in in these different areas of expertise and they're just it's an incredible opportunity and we've had so many applications from it. We've been going through it and trying to shortlist and it's the hardest job ever because everyone is incredible. We want to give everyone a chance to come work with us. Yeah. And we, yeah, it's, I just love it. It's been a really great experience and we're hoping to start interviewing some people next week. Mm. And so the goal is to upskill people in this particular because your business marketing that's right isn't it that's your background business analyst research um and anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur so it's really you know kind of got a mixed bag there Mm. and it's just that really beautiful way of giving back to the community too isn't it which I think is so much about what your culture is about Mm -hmm. as long as we do draw that line around self-preservation ensuring that your worth is recognized too Exactly. And we were so excited. We got, I haven't done the final uh, count, but we had like 60% Indigenous applicants, which is huge it's great. in, in this. Yeah. So we were so excited um, to have that. I've been at mm. jobs and I've seen no Indigenous people get apply for certain jobs. So to know that we're doing the right thing there is really cool. How do we become better allies if we're not quite sure what the next step is? I think reading or listening is the best way. I recommend Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia by Anita Heiss. It's an incredible book and it tells you about all different experiences and it's a really good starting point to kind of get different viewpoints. I think there's like 30 people who contributed to this book and it's incredible. And reading is okay. really great for me. I was like, oh, other people feel like this. That's yes. Cool. 
Yeah. Not like unifying, unifying. Yeah. yeah. I always end the podcast with two questions. Okay. And the second last one is about your hopes for education, mm-hmm. especially through obviously the Indigenous lens. So what are you hopeful for, for educators, teachers, the system moving forward? It seems really simple, but what I would look mm-hmm. for is an Indigenous teacher at every school. It mm-hmm. seems, and especially in charge of Indigenous curriculum, if there is any. <laughs> um, so that, would be, that would be one thing to actually have a teacher in charge of Indigenous curriculum rather than people fighting to try and embed Indigenous curriculum. And I find in English especially there's this real sort of to and fro between the greats, the literature greats, which obviously is a very specific lens that we look through with the historical and the cultural lens. And I think that there's still a bit of tug of war there. Oh, there definitely is. I was in a school and they were asking me, they were saying, you know, all their Indigenous students are disconnected and how do they, you know, get buy-in and how they get them interested. I was like, okay, well, what Indigenous books do you have? And um, they had one Indigenous book and the representation of the Indigenous family was really poor. And I said, yep. change that book, take it out now and put it put in dark Emu. And yes, oh, it's a four-year process. Whatever, and I say, okay, well, talk to me in four years when you're ready mm. to change it over because you're telling four years' worth of students that they have to suck it up and sit in a room where everyone's going to stereotype them because you don't want to change the book. Yes. And you're so right. Four years, that's a lot of students that go through, that that's their only experience. And, yeah, the intention is in four years we'll shift it, we'll change it, but it doesn't help those individuals that only get that experience of which you haven't changed it yet. Exactly. It has to be instantaneous once you realise there's a problem, you've been given a solution. That's a big problem with education in general, (laughs) you know, being able to put things into place straight away. But you're right. I mean, it doesn't seem like a big change and even if you didn't change the books in the curriculum couldn't you embed that somewhere Mm. and these people are people who are asking me to come in and volunteer Mm. like you need to meet halfway at least yes yeah that's so hard isn't it where it's like can you give me the solution well here it is well we can't do that okay then I don't what do you want for yes yes problems you're creating we're not good like that are we sometimes we're not good at actually hearing the solution when it's offered yeah and it's so simple it's such a quick fix we've you know we've got eco teams now and we have you know student leadership groups we have all of these big incredible programs running why wouldn't we have Mm. an indigenous exactly the last question i want to ask you Mm. is what are some of the biggest lessons you've ever learned I, I would have to go back to the Black Lives Matter um, mm-hmm. and learning to surround myself with people who will protect me and stand with me when I can't speak or when I can't talk was huge. So important to me to have allies on the team because sometimes I can't answer back to people's comments and that's when they need to step in. So that was really big for me. Can I ask in what scenario you felt you couldn't speak or you couldn't answer back? Uh, It's when, you know, sometimes you might just be emotionally exhausted and then someone wants to question why I don't just fit in or why I don't just, you know, get over it. 
and it's sometimes I just can't do it. Mm. And we need to be a strong face for other Indigenous people who are looking on the page and are seeing these comments and are going to be affected by them. I want to have a strong voice there all the time, even when I can't and when I don't want to subject my Indigenous people to to that stuff. One of the big things that I did see on your page on Survival Day was the 3%. That really hit me, actually, the fact that there's only 3%. And again, even me to an extent is like, I'm asking you these huge questions for a very varied culture. As you said, there's actually several countries of, you know, Aboriginal countries or Indigenous countries within this land. And I'm asking you these huge questions and you are one person. Yeah. And also with a background of Irish culture as well that you want to embrace. And so it must be so exhausting sometimes to want to stand up and be the voice and be the change and show people how to move forward, but also as one individual asking or answering so many questions on from and probably from a lot of white again people they're like well I want to I want to know can you tell me that's that's a huge responsibility you have yeah when you're out there at the place of something like this yeah and I look back at you know high school me who was always asked the questions in in the classroom like oh Kayla you're Aboriginal come out the front tell us why and I wouldn't know you know I wouldn't I don't know I've never heard of that and it's you know, I'm yeah. a northern girl in a southern area and I'm, like, expected to know all this stuff. And I was like, I want to learn from you. You're my teacher. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 a lot. It's a huge weight to carry. And I think that, you know, just acknowledging that we're not taught this stuff in schools. So we have to go out and learn it if we're going to learn it. My nanny was taught that she'd be punished if she spoke about these things, you know, spoken language. We've got to unknot that and try to learn again. Yeah. And there must be so much intrinsic shame around all of that kind of thing too, being told that it's bad and negative. And, you know, I mean, I think we're, we're moving so well in terms of understanding that trauma is not necessarily, I mean, it is in certain events, obviously a big event, but trauma is actually just anything that incites shame. Mm. It doesn't have to be this huge catastrophic event, it could just be something said that incites shame within us. Yeah, exactly right. And then to put all of that onto the, you know, young kids in in a classroom is just, it's just not helpful. It's really, really traumatic. I remember seeing it was in the movie The Freedom, Freedom Riders, I'm sure, and there was one black girl who was academic and was put in like, you know, the higher English class and anything that was brought up around black literature, they said, well, what's your perspective on this as a black person? And I remember watching that going, that's so unfair to expect somebody because they are of that culture to just know it all. Mm. And I think sometimes we are a bit unfair, yeah, aren't we, that the 3%, we need to be allies rather than expect somebody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent to just do all the work. Yeah, exactly. You've got to meet us halfway and learn, research, research when you can and read what's out there already. There's so much information out there. and We've got some really brilliant spokespeople who are, you know, always doing podcasts and doing YouTube clips and being in the paper. Yeah. And yeah, it's, we've got a lot to learn from 
I'm going to get you to send me as much as you can around where to look and I will try and find as much as I can and I will have the show notes stocked with places to start if you're not sure where to start because I think that's so important is to learn, listen and just absorb what you can from the people that understand and have been through and have the right, when I say right, I mean the lens of somebody with genuine knowledge. Mm. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much for giving up your time. I really appreciate everything. You've taught me so much and it's been such a lovely opportunity just to learn. Thank you. I'm off to Woman Jika Festival now, so I'm going to go have fun experience. <laughs> <Culture>. <laughs> Thank you so much.